0: Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Theological Equipping Class, our last Theological Equipping Class of the spring 2020, which has been a uh, a very difficult spring uh, just overall basically for the whole world. Uh, But glad you are checking us out and uh, listening to this lecture. This lesson is going to be on... Judaism. Now, what we've done this semester is apologetics. The word apologetics does not mean we're apologizing, like we're sorry for being Christians. The Greek word apologia means a defense. What we're doing is giving a defense of the faith. And so uh, in the first part of the semester, we talked about things like where did we get the Bible and we talked about proofs for God's existence and the problem of evil and these kind of things. Uh, But what we have done to kind of end and kind of wrap up the semester is talk about different worldviews talked about cults and we talked about world religions and things like that and so uh, the reason this is important is because you need to know this not only to defend your own faith but to evangelize those that are part of another faith or a part of another worldview and so today what we're going to be doing is going through uh, Judaism. Now I have a special uh, place in my heart for whatever reason uh, for those that are Jewish people. Uh, I am not dispensational. I am covenantal and yet I just have a special place in my heart when I find out that somebody is uh, Jewish for whatever reason. I just like hanging out with them. Uh, I like the fact that they already believe the Old Testament. That makes uh, evangelism a bit easier. Uh, There are some similarities, obviously, between Christianity and Judaism, considering that uh, Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. And so uh, I'm I'm excited to teach this lesson uh, today. Now, a few clarifiers before we get into the lesson itself. First of all, This lecture will be about modern Judaism. That's different than, for example, Old Testament Judaism or Second Temple Judaism. Judaism, like many worldviews, changes and focuses on different things in different periods of history. And so this will not just be, for example, what did Jews in the Old Testament believe? or what did Jews at the second temple period, right in between the uh, uh, end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament with Judas Maccabeus and all these kind of guys, what did they believe? But rather about modern Judaism today. Uh, what do those in your workplace who are Jewish or in your, on your sports team who are Jewish or whatever it might be, what do they most likely believe and why? This lecture will also be about non-Christian Judaism. All right? There are Jews that follow Jesus. There are Jews that love Jesus. In fact, the early converts of the church are basically all Jewish, and then Gentiles get in. And so, uh, and so this is gonna be about non-Christian Judaism. Obviously, if somebody is ethnically Jewish, but they're a Christian, then they're a Christian. Their Christianity top, uh, tops their uh, uh, Judaism, if you wanna say it, uh, say it that way. Now, there's a movement that you've probably heard called Messianic. Judaism. These are uh, those who try to reach Jewish people by keeping many Old Testament customs and keeping many uh, Jewish uh, ways of living, and yet they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What are my views on those? Well, it just depends. If it's a group of Christians— that are changing certain things about the way they dress and the way they act and certain rituals and stuff that they do just for the purposes of evangelism, that's okay. Paul says that he, when he's around the Jews, he acts like a Jew, when he's around the Gentiles, the Greeks, he acts like a Greek, so that's totally fine. But I've found that there are a lot of Messianic synagogues that uh, say that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they think that you must or that it is better to or it is somehow holier to keep Old Testament mosaic law, such as not eating certain foods and being circumcised and keeping holy days and that kind of stuff. And the Bible's very clear, you don't get to do that. Uh, You don't get to act as though somebody who's following the Mosaic law is somehow holier. The New Testament's very clear that all your righteousness is given to you uh, in Christ. Additionally, a lot of uh, Messianic synagogues that uh, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, when you really press them on their Christology, when you really press them on their Trinitarianism, some of them don't necessarily hold historically orthodox views. So uh, are Messianic synagogues good or bad? It depends which one it is and what they specifically hold. But today we're gonna be talking about non-Christian Judaism and so we won't really be getting into Messianic Judaism. Okay, let's talk about Judaism. <clears throat> there are about 14 million people worldwide who identify as being Jewish. That's 0.2% of the global population. So this is one of the world's major religions. It's a very old religion, but it is, uh, it is a bit smaller than some of the other ones. There are more Jews in North America than any other continent. That might surprise you. Okay, that might surprise you. You might think that there are the highest number of Jews in Europe or in uh, you know, the Middle East or something like that, but it's actually in North America. And in fact, there are more Jews in New York City than in Jerusalem. Okay, there's a very high Jewish population, uh, specifically in, uh, in New York and uh, a lot of places up uh, along the, the Northeast east coast of the US. Now, many of the greatest minds and cultural influencers in history were Jewish. This is something that's just fascinating. So last week when I taught on Buddhism, I mentioned some people that identify as being, you know, Buddhist, the, the Tiger Woods and the Richard Gears of the world. But really they're not, they're, you know, entertainers, but they're not going to be major cultural influencers from here on out. People aren't going to remember Richard Gere a thousand years from now or something like that. But uh, some of the greatest minds and the biggest cultural influencers in all of world history were Jewish. One of the greatest philosophers in Judaism, a guy named Moses Maimonides. Benedict Spinoza, if you've ever heard of Spinoza, his original name is Baruch, because he's Jewish. Baruch Spinoza, and he changes it to Benedict. He Latinizes it because he gets kicked out of his synagogue for his unorthodox beliefs. But he is a, uh, a brilliant philosopher. Albert Einstein, maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of Albert, Albert Einstein, okay? He is, uh, was Jewish. Karl Marx, for better or for worse. We're not saying that I agree with Marx or even that I think Marx is a great thinker, but he's certainly a cultural influencer. His uh, ideas have certainly in influenced the deaths of millions of people because uh, Marxism is bad, but Karl Marx, still a major uh, cultural influencer. He would have considered himself to be more atheistic, but ethnically he was Jewish. George Gershwin, the uh, famous composer. Edmund Husserl, Leo Strauss, A lot of these guys are famous philosophers. Sigmund Freud, Jewish. Maybe you did or didn't know that. Uh, Well, it's a fact that you either did or didn't know that. Those are your only two options, but Sigmund Freud. Robert Oppenheimer, the bomb guy, the atomic bomb guy, Jewish. Jacques Derrida, Ludwig Wittgenstein, one of the most brilliant men to ever live. Wittgenstein is uh, ethnically and culturally Jewish. Jesus, maybe you've heard of him in his humanity. Jewish, right? And then probably Tim Hollis. I don't know what ethnicity Tim is, but uh, I think he's probably Jewish just by looking at him. Uh, But anyway, some of the greatest minds and cultural influencers in history were Jewish and there's a lot that I didn't put on the list. I mean, this list could go on and on and on. For whatever reason, there there is a culture in Judaism that values education that values thought, that values the intelligentsia, that values culture, that uh, is very aware of what's going on in, uh, in the world. And so some of the greatest minds in world history are those who are Jewish. Let's talk about a definition of Judaism. The religion and culture of the Jewish people centered around ethical monotheism. That's a pretty good definition to summarize Judaism. I'm gonna read it again. Judaism, the religion and culture of the Jewish people centered around ethical monotheism. Now, the term Judaism comes from the Greek word eudaismos, right, eudaismos, okay? What that means is, uh, that that has to do with this people from Judea is kind of the idea, Uh, and it's used by the Greek-speaking Jews to distinguish their religion from that of the Hellenistic world, okay? So as Alexander the Great, right, he's not called Alexander the Pretty Good, he's kind of a big deal, he conquers the known world in his 20s, I don't know what you did in your 20s, but you're not as cool as Alexander the Great. When he does that, Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture spreads throughout the world. And uh, one of the things the Jews are doing is they're trying to have to set themselves apart. Some of that they take on. That's why they translate the Old Testament that's originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek, what's called the Septuagint. Uh, But they also want to distinguish themselves from just general Hellenism, general Greek philosophy and Greek uh, religion and that kind of stuff. Now there are two twin pillars of Judaism traditionally. So really what it meant to be Jewish for much of Jewish history centers around these two twin pillars. So if you understand these things, you understand most of Judaism, although one of these is not a big pillar today. We'll talk about that in a second. But here are the twin pillars of Judaism in the first century, okay? They are temple and Torah. Temple and Torah, okay? What what most of life revolved around, if you were a Jew, for example, especially in the, the time of Jesus, is temple and Torah. The temple was the place of worship. Though God is equally everywhere, you can feel his presence, especially at the temple. The temple is this special place where heaven and earth meet. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the temple, is called God's footstool. Uh, God doesn't have feet, but metaphorically, it's almost like his feet touch down on earth right there uh, in the temple. And so that's where sacrifices would be done, that's where there would be the priest, that's where atonement would be made, uh, that kind of stuff. So the temple was a really, really huge, important part of Judaism because The idea was that unlike the other nations, the Jews had God dwelling in their midst. And the other one was the Torah. What is the Torah? The Hebrew scriptures, okay? The Hebrew scriptures. So much of life was revolved around following God's law, following God's word. You talk about it when you rise up and when you lay down and when you walk by the way, you teach it to your kids. You try to live by it meticulously. You don't turn them to the left or to the right. Those are really the twin pillars of Judaism for much of its history, okay? Now, the, uh, the Sadducees were the group of Jews that were mainly running the temple. Okay, so there's four famous kind of groups in Judaism in the first century. I'm talking about first century stuff today just to then move into modern Judaism. And the four groups were the Zealots, these were the people that hated that they were ruled by Rome and they were all the ones with kind of their concealed dagger licenses and when a Roman soldier wasn't looking, they just kind of stab them to death. They were always trying to break free and become independent. They were kind of your uh, come and take it uh, kind of uh, group of Judaism in the first century. You had the Essenes that lived out in Qumran. They were the separatists. They basically said all of Judaism had become corrupt, so we'll start our own little pure form of Judaism out in the, uh, the desert and uh, we are the true people of God and everybody else has uh, missed it. That's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. You had the Sadducees, which were more of the uh, priestly class, more uh, the uh, aristocracy, they were kind of the well-born, the wealthy, and they were really the ones in charge typically of the temple complex. And then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that meticulously wanted to follow the law and they were the primary ones that explicated the Torah, the scriptures. Okay, you'll constantly see Jesus fighting with the Pharisees over interpreting the Bible because that was kind of their big thing. So the temple was run by the Sadducees and the Torah was explicated by the Pharisees. Now, after the temple was destroyed, remember the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. They completely destroyed it, tore it down, even pried brick from brick in certain places. And so they completely destroyed it. You ended up losing one of the twin pillars of Judaism, something that was really, really important and really, really central to the faith. So it was then the Pharisee, form of Judaism, which focused on the interpretation of scripture that became dominant in what is called Rabbinic Judaism. Jews met in synagogues to focus on the study of the Torah and they formed a new type of Judaism without sacrifices or rituals related to the temple. So in the first century, you've got these different forms, of uh, Judaism, the zealots. Simon, by the way, is called a zealot in the New Testament, which might be a reference to his political leanings and his uh, desire for violence and revolution. That group basically kind of dies out because that's just more a group of people that want rebellion. That's not really an individual school of thought or like a denomination. The Essenes eventually kind of die out because they're just the separatist group. The two mainstream forms of Judaism, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sadducees are linked to the temple. So when that's destroyed, their influence is significantly lessened And so the type of Judaism that is birthed out of the first century becomes what is known as rabbinic Judaism, okay? That is gonna be the uh, forerunner to all the types of Judaism that are gonna come later through the Middle Ages into the present day. Rabbinic Judaism will shift the focus away from temple because that doesn't exist anymore. And they'll shift the focus away from animal sacrifices. Remember, you had to offer certain sacrifices at the temple sometimes even grain offerings as a sacrifice, but you still had to do it at the temple. And so then when the temple is destroyed, what they would then say is, okay, God will accept our prayers, he will accept our holy living, he will accept our study of Torah as sacrifice. Okay, so it's a new type of Judaism that's not exactly like the Judaism of the Old Testament because it's missing some major elements. So it's a type of Judaism that will specifically focus on teaching the, the Bible, focus on teaching the Torah and then reinterpreting the parts that they cannot do anymore because there is no more temple. Okay? It's kind of a quick history and definition there. Let's talk about the sacred writings in Judaism. Here's one that you'll be very familiar with. It is called the Hebrew Bible. Okay? The Hebrew Bible the sacred religious text of what Christians call the Old Testament. Now, obviously, they don't call it the Old Testament in Judaism. That's the only Testament. And so they simply call it the Hebrew Bible is usually what it's called. Sometimes it's called the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the exact same list that we as Protestants have in our Bible today. Okay, exact same list. Some of them are in a different order and some of them are combined. Like First and Second Kings might just be kings or something like that. But it's the exact same content. Now, that should be really encouraging to you right, uh, that we really inherit the Old Testament from Judaism, and then we have the New Testament, the writings of the apostles, of what Christ did, and that kind of stuff for the, uh, for the New Testament, uh, but we inherit the uh, Old Testament from Judaism, and we have the exact same content, the exact same books uh, that they do. Now, a lot of times, the uh, Hebrew scriptures are called the Tanakh. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, the Tanakh, okay? What that is, those, uh, the first part of that, T-A- and then N-A, and then K-H, that stands for the three parts of the Old Testament. Okay, so the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is the same Old Testament that we have uh, in our scriptures as Christians. But you'll notice that they're broken up really into three kind of parts, if you wanna say it that way. You even see this in the New Testament, that there is the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy the uh, the prophets are things like jeremiah isaiah etc And then there are the writings, right? Things like the Psalms or the Proverbs or some of these other different genres. Those are the three uh, big sections, if you wanna say, of the Old Testament. And constantly in the New Testament, it will use this kind of division. It will say that uh, Jesus will say say things like, the law and the prophets speak about me. Or people will talk about the law and the prophets and the Psalms, i.e. the writings. And so this is a common designation uh, in Judaism, even within uh, Christianity, that the Old Testament is divided into these three sections. Well, that's what Tanakh stands for. The T part stands for Torah. The N part stands for prophets. In Hebrew, Nevi'im. Nevi'im is the Hebrew word for prophets. And then that uh, kind of hard K sound there at the end stands for the Kethuvim, the the writings, is what that means in Hebrew. So you've got the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kethuvim. And if you just take the first letters of each of those and uh, kind of throw some vowel sounds in there, you get the Tanakh, okay? And so sometimes the uh, Hebrew Bible is called that, but that's where that uh, comes from. Now, in addition to that, you do have another sacred writing in modern Judaism that you start getting in rabbinic Judaism and then moving forward. This is not something that Jews of the Old Testament would have known, uh, but it is called the Talmud. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Talmud, but the Talmud is a really big deal in modern Judaism. What is the Talmud? The Talmud is the body of Jewish civil and ceremonial law, including legend, comprising the Mishnah and the Gemara. It references over 2,000 Jewish teachers and scholars, and it is enormous, by the way. The English edition of the Babylonian Talmud is 18 volumes. So if you're gonna become a rabbi, you're gonna have to read a lot more than just the Old Testament. You're gonna have to read a whole lot of what is called the Talmud, okay? What is called the Talmud. Now, the, the, the Talmud, the idea of this is, is, is this, and this is very common in Judaism. This is also somewhat common in Roman Catholicism, by the way. It's that you don't just have God's written word, his or his uh, written Torah, but you also have the tradition that's been handed down by the community, kind of like an oral Torah. It's kind of the same way in Roman Catholicism. The Bible is the ultimate authority in Roman Catholicism, but you have to take into account and you have to interpret it through the lens of church tradition creeds, councils, decisions by popes, canon law, and that kind of stuff. So you end up getting kind of a written Bible and a spoken Bible, if you wanna say it that way. You have the same thing in Judaism. You have kind of a written Torah and an oral Torah. And so there is no, to, to their benefit, to their credit, there is no just reading the Bible. You understand that? When people just say, why can't we just read the Bible? Or why can't we just teach the Bible? There is no just reading the Bible. Every time you read the Bible, you are interpreting the Bible. So you can't just read it and act like it has no meaning. As soon as you say what the meaning is, you're interpreting it and your interpretation better be correct. Now, what is one of the ways that you can use to help protect your interpretation to make sure that you get it right? And the answer is by interpreting it the way all the other faithful people before you have interpreted it. Okay, but that's uh, that's why this is so important. They want to see what all these different scholars and rabbis and Jewish teachers have thought about this text. You don't wanna be the first one to hold a new religious view. Let me say it that way. Okay, you could be right, but I'd say most of the times you're not and you're starting a cult or something like that. If you're holding something that's new on a major doctrine, you're certainly wrong and you are starting a cult. But when it comes to one of these minor things, you're most likely still wrong. If it's new, to quote Tommy Nelson, it didn't Bible, if it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new. Uh, All the best truths are old. They're things that people have already thought about before you and so that's why they want to take into account what is going on in these. Now the Mishnah, so the Talmud is made of these two parts, the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah is oral tradition that had been written down. It's an authoritative collection of exegetical material written in Hebrew and Aramaic, embodying, like we just talked about, the oral tradition of Jewish law and forming the first part of the Talmud. The Gemara is rabbinical commentary and analysis of the Mishnah, forming the second part of the Talmud. So if you wanna think of it this way, the Talmud is gonna comment on the Bible, the Mishnah is kind of oral tradition, and then the Gemara kind of comments further on that. So if you, uh, you know, if you have the Bible as uh, a subpoint, B is the Mishnah, subpoint little one is the Gemara, or something like that. That's a good way to uh, to think about it. Now let's talk about some of the central beliefs in Judaism. Now we cannot cover everything today. When it comes to the central beliefs of Judaism, there are obviously a lot. It's kind of like if you were to teach every, what, what is it that Christians believe? I mean, we've spent years and years doing theological equipping classes every week trying to teach what Christians believe. So it, this is gonna have to just be an overly broad summary, but we will, uh, we will do our best. So a few things that they, uh, that they teach though we cannot cover everything. First of all, and this one is huge, monotheism. This is the idea that there is one and only one God who exists and who alone deserves worship, okay? This is one of the things that makes Judaism unique, especially in the ancient world, okay? It's so crazy that this little Semitic nation that nobody really knows about ends up having one of the most dominant ideas in world history and it's simply this, that there is only one God There's only one true God, there's only one eternal God. Even in the Old Testament when it says gods, it is either a reference to false gods, meaning so-called gods, not really gods, but I'm just using your terminology for it, pagans. So there's that. Or sometimes the angels are called gods, not because they're actually God, just because they're heavenly beings or something like that. But there is only one real God, there's only one God. Okay, so ethical uh, monotheism, we'll talk about the ethical monotheism, what that means in a second, but monotheism is huge. This is something Judaism shares with Christianity. We in Christianity believe there is only one God, period. Everything else that calls itself a God is not, it's an equivocation, but there is only one God, just like in Judaism, okay? We do not, as Christians, believe in three gods. Be careful that you don't end up thinking that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are different beings or have different minds or something like that. No, there's only one God. And that somehow this one God is also three distinct persons at the same time. And so we'll, uh, we've taught a lot about that. If you want to hear more about the Trinity, listen to some of our lectures on that. But monotheism, a big part of Judaism. Let me read some passages from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as we would call it as Christians. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Kings 8.60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Deuteronomy four twenty five. to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God there is no other besides him Isaiah 44 6 I am the first and I am the last besides me there is no God Isaiah forty three ten. you are my witnesses declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me no God was formed nor shall there be any after me Isaiah 45, five, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And I could list more, okay? And the New Testament is gonna go on to say that as well, but obviously the Jews don't believe the New Testament, so I'm not quoting. But the Bible is very clear that there is only one God. I was having uh, dinner one time with some Mormons that came to the door, and so a friend of mine invited them to dinner. And uh, I just said, okay, you guys are polytheistic. You think everybody becomes a God. What do you do with all these passages, especially in Isaiah? And he just goes, Yeah, Isaiah's tough. I don't know really what to do with Isaiah. And I'm like, well, how about you repent and stop belonging to a cult and follow Christ? Uh, That's a good option. If you don't know what to do with it, you could believe it. And so, but it's not just in Isaiah. It's all over the Old Testament. And then it's assumed elsewhere and then it's all over the New Testament as well. But monotheism, obviously a huge central belief to Judaism. Ethnocentrism. Now this one's interesting ethnocentrism. Since it's Abraham and his descendants to whom the promises are made, it is important to try to remain ethnically Jewish. Okay, so notice that what you have in the Old Testament is even these commands not to marry outside of Israel, that if you're Jewish, you must marry a Jewish person, that you shouldn't be marrying a Gentile or something like that. Now, let me clarify. Yes, a Gentile may convert to Judaism, okay? But endogamy dogamy marriage within one's own people group is encouraged in Judaism. So you have this strong ethnic thing that you don't have in Christianity. In Christianity, what you have is in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, that, uh, that what God wants you to do is stop focusing on what makes you different from other people and notice that your race and your gender and all that kind of stuff doesn't really matter, it's that you know Christ, okay? The gospel's going to all nations but with Israel, that's something that's different. With Israel, there is this focus on ethnicity, that it is good to be ethnically Jewish. Marriage with one owns people group is encouraged. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, one of the things that he makes them do is divorce their wife if they are married to a Gentile, and then send away their kids if they're married to a Gentile. This is a big deal in Judaism, which is why the New Testament has to spend so much time saying now that Christ has come, stop focusing on your Jewishness and focus on your Christianness. Now. What is it that makes you uh, ethnically Jewish today? Well, what rabbis have decided is that to be ethnically Jewish, your mom has to be Jewish. Why is that? Because you don't know for sure who the dad is, but you always know for sure who the mom is, okay? Now today, we know more because we have uh, the different you know, genetic testing and DNA testing and that kind of stuff, but for most of world history, you, you think your dad is your dad, but you're not sure but you know that your mom is your mom because everybody sees when she gives birth to you and when she carries you in her stomach and that kind of stuff. So I sometimes make a joke where I say, you know, if there's some weird show on TV, Mari or Jerry Springer or something, I'm like, why don't they ever question who the mom is? And it's obviously a joke because you know who the mom is because she carries the baby around in her, uh, her stomach. So that's what they've decided. If your mom is Jewish, then you are Jewish. So we've got uh, uh, some members here at Parkway and uh, his wife is Jewish because her mom was Jewish. So she's Jewish and then they gave birth and this guy's daughter is then therefore Jewish. And so I was joking with him the other day. I'm like, man, you're the only Gentile in your family. Your wife is Jewish, your daughters, Jewish. any other kids you have will be Jewish. You're the only Gentile, right? but that's something that's important in Judaism, ethnocentrism. A lot of what Paul is trying to do in the New Testament when he's saying that you are not saved by circumcision and food laws and uh, all that kind of uh, mosaic law stuff that you're saved by faith in Christ is he actually is talking about a racial issue. He's talking about Jewish ethnocentrism. He's trying to say that you're not saved by faith in Christ and by acting or being Jewish, you're just saved by faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile. Another important part, now listen to this one. This is something that's interesting to me. I had to, to, to write on this in school. <clears throat> the Mosaic law is a huge, huge element of being Jewish. Following the commands and practices described in the Torah. Okay, following the uh, commands and practices described in the Torah. Now here's what's really interesting to me. There's a uh, Jewish scholar, his name's Shia Cohen, and he wrote a book in 1987 called From the Maccabees to the Mishnah. And in that, he argued something that's really interesting that I think is right okay? Here's what he says. Judaism is more about practice than doctrine, more about praxis than doxa, more about practice than worship or theology, more about deed than creed, if you want to say it that way. That's a good little rhyming way to think about it. Now, l- let, me, let me explain what I mean. In Judaism, I'm sorry, in Christianity and in Islam, for example, these are creedal religions, the thing that makes you a Christian or a Muslim is what you believe first and foremost. It is about set standard doctrines that you must affirm, you must believe. Yes, there are things you do. Yes, you have to act ethically, and yes, you have to do all these other things if you're gonna be an obedient follower of Christ, but that's not what saves you, that's not what makes you first into that religion. In Islam, that does save you because it is a workspace religion, but in both, uh, the, both in Christianity and in Islam, they're creedal religions. It's primarily about belief And then there's also practice. Well, listen to this, this is important. Judaism is not primarily a creedal religion. It's primarily about a lifestyle. It's primarily about a practice. Let me prove it to you, I think this is fascinating. If you think back to the New Testament, you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They are both considered to be Jewish, Jesus considers them both to be Jewish to some extent, yet they differ radically in their theology. So the Sadducees deny the resurrection. That's a super big deal. They deny the existence of angels, and they only think that Genesis through Deuteronomy are scripture. They only, that's the only thing they think is God's word, okay? But they're still considered Jews. The Pharisees disagree with them on all those points. The Pharisees think that all of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is God's word. They believe in a general resurrection. They believe in angels, etc. Yet they're both considered Jewish. How can they both be considered Jewish if they differ on major doctrines like what the scriptures are and whether or not there is life after death. Most Sadducees believed you just died and that was it, end of story. Some of them might have believed that you went to some sort of paradise, but they definitely didn't believe in resurrection or something like that. How can they hold these different views and still both be Jewish? Because Shia Cohen's thesis is right. Judaism is more about a lifestyle. It's more about uh, a practice, it's more about a culture and a community and how you live your life than it is working out all the details of your theology. That's similar, by the way, uh, to Jeff's lesson on Hinduism. Hinduism is primarily an Indian-style culture, which is why even within Hinduism, you can, have, you can be a polytheist, you can be a monotheist, you can be uh, an atheist. Why is that? Because it's primarily about the deed more than the creed. It's primarily about uh, praxis more than doxa, okay? I had a a professor who uh, was a Jewish atheist. He was a philosophy professor. And I always thought to myself, a Jewish atheist, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that ethnically, he considers himself to be Jewish. He grew up in a Jewish culture. He has Jewish friends, a Jewish family, but he doesn't actually believe God exists, right? And so notice how, uh, how much this has even shifted into modern Judaism. So you could have some variance in belief in Judaism throughout Jewish history, but at least you believed in Yahweh, you believed in God. But today you can even be considered Jewish and be atheistic because it is so much of a cultural a culture. <clears throat> now, within Judaism, you have what is called the Halakha What is the halakha? It's the totality of laws and ordinances that have evolved since biblical times to regulate religious observances and the daily life and conduct of the Jewish people. That's oral Torah, like we talked about earlier. Oral Torah, these things that may not be written down in the Bible, but they might be written down elsewhere. There are these things you're supposed to do, the ways you're supposed to do it, uh, et cetera. That's called halakha. I'm gonna read that again. The totality of laws and observances that have evolved since biblical times to regulate religious observances and the daily life and conduct of the Jewish people, okay? Another important part of uh, central belief of Judaism, we have monotheism, ethnocentrism, the Mosaic law. One is simply called loving kindness, that it's emphasized in Judaism that Jews should pursue love, kindness, and justice toward their fellow man, okay? So Judaism would want to promote uh, types of justice, it would want to promote love, caring for one another, kindness, etc. And in modern Judaism, a central belief is a present life focus, okay? A present life focus. Unlike much of Christianity in the Middle Ages where the focus is just to get to the next world, it's just to get to eternity, it's to ignore uh, what's, going on, uh, what's going on down here. Uh, they have a present life focus. The focus is not as much on what happens after you die, but on living a righteous and God-honoring life now, okay? Those would be the big uh, central beliefs of modern Judaism. Now let's talk about branches of modern Judaism, okay? Branches of modern Judaism. So in Christianity, how many denominations are there? Like 30 billion. And every other independent, autonomous church breaks off and pretends it's not a denomination, yet it's just a conglomeration of a bunch of different denominations mixed together. Well, in Judaism, it's a bit simpler that there are three main branches of Judaism. Again, there are subsets and these kind of things, but three main branches uh, of Judaism. Maybe a good way to think about this is the three main branches of Christianity. You have Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Protestant. All of those are technically Orthodox in the sense that they historically believe the uh, uh, right things about the Trinity and who Christ is and that kind of stuff, Uh, but those are three main branches, but they're very different from one another. In the same way, in Judaism, you have three main branches. Now, I'm going to give you their names, but the names of each branch branch are super, uh, super confusing, okay? So, for example, orthodox means conservative. Conservative means moderate. And reformed means liberal. So if I were to break up Judaism into conservative, moderate, and liberal, the conservative branch is called orthodox. Okay, that one kind of makes sense. But then the moderate branch is called conservative. Well, that's confusing. And then the liberal branch is called reformed, which is the opposite of Christianity. In Christianity, reformed Christianity is very conservative. Uh, Reformed Christianity is very much about, when I say conservative here and liberal, I don't mean just politically or something. I mean theologically. Very much believes the Bible, all the Bible. The miracles are real. Christ is God, etc. The the big stuff, uh, and so. But reformed in Judaism is the most liberal branch of Judaism. So we'll talk about what each one believes. First, let's start with Orthodox. This is the most conservative branch of Judaism. They believe the Hebrew Bible is inspired by God and must be followed meticulously. And they believe that one should practice correct halakha, right? These uh, kind of practices that are handed down, this kind of oral Torah type stuff. We may not change what the Bible says to fit modern times. Now that's really important with Orthodox Judaism. They say, if it's God's word, we can apply it to new situations, but we don't get to change it, okay? That's very much like uh, uh, historic Orthodox Christianity uh, in that as well, okay? Orthodox Judaism is awaiting a personal Messiah to come in the future and deliver them. Now listen to this next part. This is fascinating. Orthodox Judaism was really the only common form of Judaism until the 18th century. So most of Judaism, throughout its history, has been Orthodox Judaism until the 18th century. A group of Jude- uh, a view in Judaism that says the Bible is God's word it is inspired. We must follow all of it. We're waiting a personal Messiah, etc. Okay. It's only after the 18th century that you start to get people to kind of water it down because it maybe seems like the Messiah is not coming or maybe seems like these rules are too hard to follow or whatever it might be, okay? Within Orthodox Judaism, you have a subbranch of that, the ultra-Orthodox. You've probably seen these guys. They wear all black clothes. They don't trim the edges of their beards. They often speak Yiddish, okay? What is Yiddish? Yiddish, Yiddish is like a uh, kind of a Jewish form of a European language that many Jews in Europe spoke Uh, especially among other Jews. So when you hear phrases like oy vey or mashagana or something like that, those are typically uh, Yiddish phrases. They're not uh, specifically actually Hebrew phrases. Um, And then you also have what is called Hasidic Judaism. This is European in flavor. It expects an imminent messianic age and focuses on Jewish mysticism, okay? You've heard of maybe Kabbalah, Kabbalah is a type of Jewish mysticism. I think Madonna likes to practice Kabbalah, although she doesn't look very Jewish to me. Uh, but she, uh, she likes to practice Kabbalah. What is mysticism? Mysticism is trying to encounter the divine by circumventing the mind. That's a good way to define it. Where you're trying to have this experience, this place where you're brought up to a higher plane experientially, but it's not done with logic and facts and propositions and all that kind of stuff. It seeks to kind of circumvent the, uh, the mind. Well, that is Orthodox Judaism and some of uh, some other little movements attached to that. Now let's talk about the second branch of Judaism, what is called conservative Judaism. This is, ironically with the name, the moderate branch of Judaism. Why is it moderate? Well, they believe the Bible and they believe that halakha are still binding, but they may be changed to fit with modern times. So it's kind of a compromise. It says, okay, this is God's word, but we need to adapt it to fit with modern times. They believe that there will not be a personal Messiah, but that an age of peace can eventually be ushered in through human progress, not just like secular human progress, but righteous human progress, specifically through Jewish progress. In this branch, there is both tradition and change. They are liberal in belief, but conservative in practice. There is also a focus in conservative Judaism on maintaining unity with the Jewish people worldwide. So they'll put a big emphasis on saying, hey, listen, we need to make sure that we're still united with Jews all around the world, even if there are some differences within our beliefs. And then the last branch of modern Judaism, what is called reformed Judaism. This is the most liberal branch of Judaism. They believe the Bible is helpful ethically, but not inspired. They dispense with much of the halakha and uh, Jewish tradition The Mosaic law may be discarded to fit within modern times. They believe that there will not be a personal Messiah, but that an age of peace can eventually be ushered in through human progress. Now listen to this, there is no resurrection. There's no belief of resurrection in Reformed Judaism. Rather, one metaphorically lives on. You're metaphorically resurrected through your accomplishments or through your descendants. Why are, uh, what is one of the reasons that uh, many Jewish people that are uh, Reformed Jews that they are very successful, because the way that they live on is through their accomplishments or through their descendants. They send their kids to the best schools, they uh, train their kids, they're very well-educated and these kind of things. That's their type of resurrection. The way that I live on is through my accomplishments, so people remember me, or through my descendants. Now there's a focus in Reformed Judaism on reason and modernity over revelation and miracle. Okay, A focus on reason and modernity over revelation and miracle. Now, this is the type of Judaism that you get a lot in the entertainment industry. So there's a stereotype about how many Jewish people work in Hollywood and make movies and that kind of stuff. And you might think to yourself, well, wait a second, if they're Jewish, how are they making these kind of movies? How are they, many uh, pornography producers are Jewish. How how can you do that if you're being Jewish? Well, the answer is they're probably a type of Judaism which doesn't care so much on following all the parts of the Bible and the Old Testament, who probably doesn't think that there's gonna be this, maybe a resurrection or even ultimate judgment. Uh, In speaking with, uh, my mother one time was speaking with a reformed Jewish rabbi and just said, you know, how come some Jews are very pious but then other Jews just live wickedly and promote all kinds of sin, what's gonna happen to them? And the rabbi's response is, it's like when you throw clean clothes and dirty clothes into the wash, everything comes out clean in the wash. And I was like, what What does that mean? That's Reformed Judaism okay? That's Reformed Judaism. This is the most common type of Judaism that you'll probably get uh, a lot of places in the United States. It's mainly cultural, uh, it's very progressive, it's very left leaning, uh, but that's what you get uh, a lot in the United States. Now, there are differing opinions among Jews regarding what's called Zionism. Whether or not Jews have a right to the land of Israel, whether it was right for the the Jewish nation to become its own independent nation, uh, whether or not you should be fighting against Muslims, and to what extent, and enemies of Israel and all that kind of stuff, this isn't a lesson on Zionism, but just simply to say there's varying opinions among Jews on what to believe about the land of Israel that we don't have time to get into today. Now, you can't talk about Judaism without at least saying something about the Holocaust, okay? Perhaps uh, the worst, one of the, one of the worst atrocities in human history, period, and uh, probably the worst atrocity committed against the Jewish people. Jews have been persecuted throughout history. In the Old Testament, they were persecuted by nations like Egypt and Babylon. But even since, they were persecuted by Muslims, they were persecuted by Christians, uh, they were persecuted a lot by socialists. Okay, that's ironic. If somebody is Jewish today and also more left-leaning and socialistic, uh, you've got to read a history book because that does not go well. When socialist and communist people take over your nations, they do not treat uh, the Jews well. The Nazis were socialists. Just keep that in mind. Always important to keep in mind. You don't wanna be like the Nazis. Now, the most famous persecution of Jews is the Holocaust, where Nazi Germany had over six million Jews systematically murdered within the span of just a few years. I mean, they, they are killing so many Jews that they are just running out of places to bury them. They're running out of bullets. It's considered a waste of a bullet in some places to shoot someone who's Jewish in the Holocaust. So they end up gassing a lot of them. They end up uh, burning a lot of them. Some of them alive. If you didn't die from the gas, you were still put into the incinerator. And so it was just, just awful. It, it's such a bad thing that the Holocaust is one of the few ethical issues that you can bring up to somebody who's a relativist, who doesn't think there's absolute truth and get them to budge at least. Are you telling me the Holocaust wasn't bad? And so it is awful. Okay. Today, Jews remain one of the most persecuted groups in the United States. This is something that gets pushed to the back. When we think of persecuted groups in the United States, we think primarily of maybe African-Americans or we think primarily of Muslims post 9-11. There's a lot of racism towards Muslim Muslims post 9-11. Or we think of women who've traditionally been marginalized or whatever. And the group that often gets ignored, which again, ironically is somewhat racist, is the Jews. There's still a lot of persecution. Uh, just a, a few months ago, a uh, Jewish synagogue was shot up by a group called the Black Hebrew Israelite Movement. Carl taught about that in his uh, teaching on uh, different kinds of cults and that kind of stuff, and a synagogue was shot up. Before that, you had a white guy go up and shoot up uh, a synagogue. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's, it's a race thing or whatever, but I am trying to say the race being persecuted, the Jews, that still happens a lot uh, today. The Holocaust has shaped the theology of many Jews and listen to this next part, has caused many to become agnostic or atheistic. When you talk about the history of Judaism, you will mention great things like being delivered out of Egypt. You'll mention something like God making a promise with Abraham and his descendants. You'll talk about things like uh, Judas Maccabeus and rebelling against the pagans. You'll talk about things like uh, Hanukkah and, uh, and these kind of major events in Judaism, well, one of those major events that you've got to talk about now is the Holocaust. All Jewish theology is seen somehow, at least affected to a small deg- degree by the Holocaust. And it has caused many Jews to become agnostic or atheistic. Here's the thinking, God, if we are really your people, and if we are really trying to do our best to follow your law, how could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? So what we need to keep in mind in ministering to Jewish people is we need to keep in mind how much they have been persecuted. This is a, uh, a place where we can agree that that should have never happened and that was really, really bad. And so, uh, so keep in mind when you are uh, sharing the gospel or being friends with or whatever, someone who's Jewish, they might see you as somebody who's historically oppressed them. During the Middle Ages, many Christians oppressed uh, Jewish people. And so keep that in, uh, in mind. Now, are Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah saved? Are Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah saved? Okay, let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, there are many benefits in being Jewish. Romans 9, four through five, Paul says, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Amen. Notice by the way, and I don't wanna get too uh, off topic here but I think this is interesting. Notice that Paul says that the Jews have privilege. He's pointing here to kind of a cultural privilege and he doesn't say that it's bad. Privilege in and of itself is not bad, it's good. It depends on how you use the privilege. You should have privilege and then use it to help other people but privilege in and of itself is not bad. Paul here points to Jewish privilege and all the benefits that it comes with being Jewish. However, though there are many benefits of being Jewish, you are not saved unless you have explicit faith in Christ. The Bible is clear that there is no salvation for Jew or Gentile apart from Jesus. Listen to our lecture on uh, pluralism for more info on this, but let me just read you a few passages. Acts 4, 11 through 12, speaking to Jews. It says, this Jesus is the stone that uh, was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 1 for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. John three, eighteen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 14 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John three, excuse me, John three, thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Second John nine, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So Zach, why do Jews not accept that Jesus is the Messiah? Because that's the big issue. Why do Jews not accept that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you want to know why? Because he died on a cross, because he was killed. What, ha- what is happening in the first century is that the Jews are reading their presuppositions, their assumptions, back onto the Old Testament. They're ignoring passages that talk about the Messiah having to suffer. They're ignoring passages that talk about the Messiah needing to die for God's people. And they're just focusing on the kingly elements of the Messiah, So they're expecting a Jew to come and overthrow Rome. That's what you're thinking if you're in the first century. If you're in the first century, you're thinking, wait a second, we're Israel. We're not supposed to be ruled by the Romans. We're supposed to be ruling over all the nations. Our king in the line of David is supposed to be ruling over all the nations, but that's not happening. So when the Messiah comes, he will overthrow Rome. He will be born not in a manger or something lowly, but in a palace, he will not be meek and mild, he will not turn the other cheek. He will with the sword overthrow Rome and lead a rebellion. He will do what Judas Maccabeus did. He will be this proto-messianic figure that helps us rebel against our captors politically. That's what the Jews are expecting in the 1st century, okay? So the fact that Jesus comes and he dies on a cross to Jews shows that he wasn't the Messiah. Let me say it clear: Messiahs don't get crucified, they crucify. They're the ones putting their enemies up on the cross, they're not the ones getting put up on a cross by their enemies, and so Jesus is the Messiah, he's not, and he is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. He's just not the Messiah that many Jews in the first century were expecting, because, and I think there's an important lesson here for us, they were reading the Bible through the lens of their politics, They were reading the Bible through the lens of their culture instead of just looking at what the Bible says in its original context. So the reason they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah is because he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. He is the Messiah they should have been expecting had they been reading the Bible and not presupposing all these things onto the text. And what they also don't understand is that Jesus is coming back like that. He just has to come and save us first, You see, you don't want Jesus coming back to judge God's enemies, because if you've broken God's law, you're one of God's enemies, including the Jews. That's what John the Baptist has to say. Don't say that you're children of Abraham. God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the Jews in the first century, that are thinking, God, please send the Messiah. You don't want the Messiah, because if he comes, he's gonna kill you too, because you're disobedient. The Messiah kills disobedient people. That's what he does, okay? So Jesus has to come once, to save us, to live the life we should have lived, to die on a cross so that we might be forgiven, to be resurrected, right? To show that he is who he says he is, but he is coming back. And when he comes back, he's gonna be coming back like Jews in the first century, we're imagining. He's coming back not riding a donkey peacefully into Jerusalem, but on a war horse drenched in blood. That's the idea of revelation. That doesn't mean he has to literally have a horse. The idea though is that he's here for war. He's here to judge his enemies. He's here to create a bloodbath. This is what the second coming will be. And so yes, you want a strong political Messiah who's gonna crush all worldly governments and reign over everything. That's gonna happen. But you don't want that happening until you've had a Messiah die in your place on the cross. That's the main reason that Jews don't believe he is the Messiah. Surely if he was the Messiah, so many Jews wouldn't have rejected him which is why the New Testament authors say, wait a second, this is the stone that the builders have rejected. Yes, the very people that should have got it didn't get it. And the people that didn't, weren't supposed to get it, the Gentiles, they got it, okay, they got it. How should we engage with those who are Jewish today? Let me give you a few thoughts and then we'll be done with this lesson. How Christians should engage with those who are Jewish. First of all, we should be kind, loving, and compassionate towards Jews especially in light of the persecution they've received throughout history, okay? Especially because of the persecution they've received throughout history. Keep that in mind. Again, when you're talking to a Jewish person, they uh, remember how they're always seen as kind of this outcast group, okay? Think about it. If you're Jewish, how do, how, what have many Christians said to you? They've said, you're the ones who killed Jesus, Now that's kind of an oversimplification. Yes, the Jews cry out for his blood, but the problem is not that they're ethnically Jewish in the New Testament, it's that they don't believe in Jesus. It's that they are, uh, they're non-believing Jews. When the Bible speaks negatively about the Jews, it's not like Hitler talking negatively about their ethnicity. When the Bible speaks negatively about the Jews, it doesn't speak negatively about the Jews because of their ethnicity. It speaks negatively about unbelieving Jews. It's very pro-Jews that believe in Jesus, right? So the issue's not Jews, it's whether or not you do or don't believe in Jesus, but remember that for them, they've had several Christians tell them, you're the one that killed Jesus, which is an oversimplification because the Romans also killed him and we also killed him because it was our sin that he was dying for and the father also killed, killed him, you know, because this was God's plan from the beginning, etc. We should rejoice that they are already familiar with the Old Testament. Now, not all of them, right? So if you talk to your average Catholic neighbor or whatever, they might not really know all the things Catholics believe. Many Jews don't know all the things Jews believe. But many Jews are at least familiar with or agree with or at least have a respect for the Old Testament, which is a great launching pad to talk about the gospel. Can you share the gospel, by the way, with just the Old Testament? You understand that's what they're doing in the New Testament. Before the New Testament is done being written, the only Bible they have to preach Christ from is the Old Testament. Can you preach Christ convincingly to somebody from the Old Testament? Do you know the Old Testament well enough to do so? Number three, we should show them how we have all fallen short of God's commands and therefore need someone to make atonement for us. God demands perfection, not just general conformity to his law. So many Jews think, hey, I'm fine because I'm generally following God's commands, I'm not cheating on my wife, I'm not stealing from people, I'm generally a good person. And so one of the things you have to show them is that's not what the Bible commands. The Bible's very clear that if you don't follow all of God's word, you are cursed, you are under God's wrath. God demands perfection, not just being good enough, which is why you need Christ. And by the way, you can't just say, well, we can't do atonement today, so I'll just pray. That's not what the Old Testament says. The fact that the temple was destroyed is further evidence that that form of Judaism and that way of worshiping God is no longer accepted. Jesus is the new temple. Number four, we should seek to show that Jesus is the Messiah and God himself. That's the central issue, by the way. All other issues are peripheral, okay? So I got to take a mission trip one time to uh, Israel and I got to share the gospel with some people who were Jewish and the things that, I mean, the central message I'm trying to get across to them is that Jesus is the Messiah. It's that Jesus is God himself. That's the message. I didn't waste my time debating about pork and what we could eat. I didn't waste my time debating about the history of uh, the yamaka or something like this. We got down to business and just said, listen, the Bible promises a personal Messiah. You're still waiting for him, and it seems like he's not coming. Why is that? Because he's already come. Let's look at all the passages that talk about the Messiah's suffering, the Messiah being pierced for our transgressions, the Messiah dying for us, because that's what you're ignoring and looking for merely a uh, conquering political Messiah and not one who is the lamb before roaring like a lion, okay? So that is the thing you need to keep in mind. So hope that's been helpful. Hope that gives you a little insight into Judaism. Let's pray and then we will be dismissed. Almighty God, we confess that uh, you are gracious to us that you have allowed us to see what so many people have been blinded to. You've allowed us to see Christ. So I pray right now for our Jewish neighbors. I pray for our uh, Jewish friends. I pray for our Jewish coworkers, that uh, the, the Bible would say that there's a veil that remains over their eyes when they read the Old Testament. I pray that you'd remove that veil because that veil is only removed in Christ. I pray that they would be convicted by the, how far they fall short of your word, I pray that they would be convicted in trusting in their own righteousness. I pray that they would be convicted for not believing that Jesus was the Messiah and that they would put their hope in Jesus. Would you grant them grace? Would you soften hearts? Because you and you alone can save. We love you, our almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.